Good morning, Christ Prez. We're continuing to make our way through the book of Revelation, and a continuing theme of our study has been that things are not as they seem. There's more to reality than meets the eye. And what Revelation aims to do is unveil that unseen reality of the present, to pull back the curtain on the present so that we see what is really going on. But remember, it's not really aiming to give us new information. It's seeking to transform our imaginations so that we can actually see more clearly. But see what? Well, with the approach we've been taking, the point of most of Revelation, at least, isn't to help us see more clearly into the future. Revelation isn't a crystal ball. It's more like a discipleship manual. Remember, John is a pastor who wants the Christian communities to which he's writing to be able to follow Jesus faithfully in their context. And in order to do that, they need their imaginations purged and refurbished. They need the curtain pulled back so that they can see in a new way the story they're a part of and the enemy they're up against and the savior they're called to follow. We need that too. Last week, John showed us that we're in a war, not just a war, the war, the great cosmic war behind all other wars. And we met our real enemy, this great seven-headed, ten-horned dragon. John identifies this enemy as Satan, the deceiver and accuser. And he is a terrible foe. Luther was right. On earth is not his equal. And unfortunately, he's not alone. Chapter 12 ends with the dragon standing on the sand and the sea. And now in our passage, we see him summon up two monsters, two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land. You don't believe in monsters? Maybe it's time to start believing. What Revelation shows us is this, evil is at work in the powers of this world to lure us away from allegiance to the lamb. Well, let's unpack this by looking at these beasts. Let's see what John shows us about who they are, what they want, and then how to resist them. Who they are, what they want, how to resist. Who are the beasts? Let's take them in order. The first beast arises out of the sea and immediately it should remind us of the dragon we encountered in chapter 12. It also has seven heads, 10 horns with diadems on each horn. But the next verse complicates the image. We're told that it was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. What's going on here? Well, this recalls Daniel's vision in, in Daniel chapter seven, where he sees four beasts coming up out of the sea, one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard, and one with 10 horns. So John's beast is like an amalgamation of Daniel's beasts. And in Daniel, remember, the beasts are symbolic. They represent kings and kingdoms. They stand for political realities. It's the same here in John. Remember, we're reading apocalyptic literature and these images are not meant to be taken literally. They're symbolic and representative of other realities. In Daniel, clearly political realities. For John, it's also a political reality. And what is it? Who is John's first beast? Well, there's only one obvious candidate that would have made sense to John's first readers, Rome. This first monster is the Roman Empire. And what's behind it? Well, keep reading, verse two. To it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And the whole earth marveled at the beast and followed the beast. Well, we know that the world did marvel at Rome and did follow Rome. In John's day, the Roman Empire 
portrayed and interpreted itself as a gift to civilization and the zenith of human accomplishment. But see, John is showing us the reality that Rome is a monster. And behind this monster is the ultimate monster, the dragon itself. So in this powerful, vivid way, John is showing the first century Christian communities and showing us another of the main ways that the dragon is at work. Last week, we talked about the dragon's deception that comes at us in individual, personal ways through temptation and accusation. And it's kind of a classic evangelical move to go that route when it comes to talking about the enemy, to reduce the enemy's work to personal temptation and sin, as if the battle with the enemy is only waged in the individual human heart. Now, to be clear, the battle with the enemy is waged in the individual human heart. As far as that goes, it's true enough. But it just doesn't go far enough. We can't stop there. Revelation certainly doesn't stop there. Now we see that evil is also at work in the world through systems and structures, through institutions and governments. See, the dragon has bigger plans. Its deception also works at the corporate and systemic levels. Evil works in and through institutions and structures of this world to carry out the dragon's terrible purposes. How did Christians living in the first century experience the beastliness of Rome? Well, one of the ways was through overt persecution. Persecution wasn't uncommon and being killed for following Jesus was a real possibility. This is a beast that can quite literally take your life. But at the same time, Christians face the much more deadly danger of complacency and compromise with the beast, especially if they didn't recognize Rome for the beast it was. These early Christians had made Rome their home, and so often the real danger was not that Rome would persecute them, but that they would simply give themselves over to its idolatrous and unjust ways. And this is really what the second beast is all about. The, the first beast came from the sea. For Jews living in the first century, in addition to representing chaos and evil, the sea often represented the Gentile world. Rome is the beast coming from the sea. But the second beast comes from the land. The land was associated with the people of God. In other words, this beast arises on the home turf. It's not an enemy invader. It's homegrown. The second beast has two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. In other words, it looks like it looks, uh, it looks like Jesus, but it, speak, it speaks lies. It deceives. We learn that it exercises authority on behalf of the first beast and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast by performing signs and magic. So what's going on here? Well, at, at that time, all over the Roman world, in city after city, there were local elites, religious and government leaders, who were desperate to curry favor with Caesar and grow their own privilege and power. So they built temples to Caesar, demanded sacrifices to him, called people to worship him, commissioned art about him, wrote music, maybe sold t-shirts and bobblehead dolls, maybe created their own news networks. They were essentially propagandists for the empire, the marketing machine of the Roman power. You see, the second beast is all about reinforcing the power of the first beast. It's about all the religious and ideological systems that woo people away from the lamb and to the beast, that lead people to value and embrace the beast's ways of power and violence and injustice, rather than the lamb's way of humble, suffering, self-giving love. 
John is saying, Christians, watch out. You are surrounded by evil forces at work, operating in and through society and the state, seeking to draw you away from allegiance to your true king. And so we need to ask, now that the Roman Empire is no longer a thing, is the beast dead? Is this monster just a historical reality that we no longer have to worry about? Well, no, of course not. Remember, the dragon behind the beast is terribly powerful. When one beast goes down, another rises in its place. Here's how one writer puts it. The beast is not merely Rome. It is the inhuman, anti-human arrogance of empire, which has come to expression in Rome, but not only there. All who support the cultural religion in or out of church, however lamb-like they may appear, are agents of the beast. All propaganda that entices humanity to idolize human empire is an expression of this beastly power that wants to appear lamb-like. Close quote. You see, we're still living with these beasts, aren't we? Well, more on this in a moment. We've looked at who these beasts are. Now let's look at what they want. What are they after? What, what is it that they demand? Do you know what they want? They want our allegiance. And maybe the best place to see this is by looking at the most well-known number of Revelation, 666, the mark of the beast. What's going on with this infamous number? Well, John tells us that it's the number of a man, and this has led a lot of people to look for a particular human figure who represents the beast. In Hebrew, there's a system that assigns numeric values to each letter of the alphabet, and, and by that system, you can calculate a number for any name. Well, sure enough, an, early, an earlier Roman emperor, Nero, would have the number 666. There were rumors during John's day that Nero might return from the dead, and some thought that the emperor Domitian, probably the current emperor during John's writing, was basically Nero all over again. It's like he carried the baton of persecution and idolatry and injustice after Nero had died. So maybe John is just wanting to make uh, sure we know this about Rome, and so he's giving us the number of Nero. John tells us it's the number of a man, and if so, my money is on Nero. But what John says could also be translated like this. It's a human number. See, it's not a number of a particular man. It's, it's a human number. Well, what would that mean? We know that seven is a really important number in Revelation. It's a sign of perfection and completion. And remember, we also know in Scripture that repetition can be a way of adding emphasis. God is not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy, but he's holy, holy, holy. He's really, really holy. 144,000 isn't just 144 times 10, but 144 times 10 times 10 times 10. See, six is like seven and that it's close. It's only one less than seven. It's almost there, but it falls short. You might even mistake six for seven if you aren't paying attention. But the number isn't six. It's six, six, six. See, it's like six. It's like the imperfection being repeated three times. It's like complete incompletion. It's like perfect imperfection. Now, that's an interesting possibility. 
John isn't giving us a code to help us identify an individual. He's using a number, as he almost always does, in a symbolic way that communicates theological truth. The beast's number is perfectly incomplete. 666, then, isn't an invitation to identify an individual. It's just telling us something about the nature of the beast. Well, verse 16 says that the second beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. There have been so many wild interpretations about what this means, and it's become the center for endless debates and not a little end-time hysteria. A different approach than the one I've been taking to the whole book might see this as a visible sign that's going to be forced upon people before the return of Jesus, maybe a literal mark, like a tattoo, or maybe a chip implant, or some kind of imprint, or more recently, maybe a vaccine, some kind of literal physical mark by which those who are loyal to the beast will be identified. But again, I just don't think that's the kind of book we're dealing with when we come to Revelation. Everything John writes was first for his immediate context. Remember, this is not a crystal ball. John is a pastor, and he's wanting to give us intensely practical help. And remember, his mind is absolutely saturated with the Old Testament scriptures. So what is this mark of the beast about? Well, remember the ancient Jewish prayer, the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God's people are told to bind these words as a sign on their hands and on uh, their foreheads, as frontlets between their eyes. It was a symbol of devoting all your thoughts, your head, and all your actions, your hand, to the one true God. It's a symbol of allegiance and devotion to God. And remember, John has already in chapter 7 talked about God's people being marked by God with a seal placed on their foreheads, a sign of their belonging to God and a sign of their allegiance to him. That mark wasn't a literal mark, and neither is this one. You see, this mark of the beast, it's not a microchip or a secret implant. It's not a tattoo or a vaccine. Like pretty much everything else in Revelation, it's symbolic. And what does it symbolize? It symbolizes false allegiance, distorted worship, misguided loyalty given to someone or something other than the true living God. And in this context, especially allegiance given to the power of the dragon-manipulated state. So what does the beast want? Allegiance, devotion. And this is always manifested in our worship. You know, this war we are in turns out to be a worship war. Who will we trust to give us strength and security and provision? Who will we worship? The true living God or the beasts, the false gods behind whom lies the power of the dragon? Richard Balcom says that one of the huge themes of Revelation is counterfeiting. A counterfeit is close enough to the real thing so as to entice you and lead you away from the real thing. Look at all the ways we see the beast counterfeiting in this chapter. We already saw it with the mark, parodying the mark of the father. In verse 3, the beast has a fatal wound that has been healed and the whole world marveled. Well, who else has a visible wound that caused the world to marvel? The lamb. 
The beast has authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Well, who else has authority over the nations? The lamb. The beast has two horns like a lamb, yet speaks like a dragon. The beast is mimicking and counterfeiting the glory of God in Christ. That's what the beasts do. They mimic the power of God by promising to do and provide for us what God alone can do and provide. They lure us away from devotion and allegiance to the Lamb. That's what all false, false gods do. They promise to give you only what God can provide. John sees Christians, well-meaning Christians, who are afraid, who are scared, who are weary, who are tired. He sees them just giving in to Rome. It's not like Caesar is asking them to give up Jesus. He's just asking them to give him full allegiance. You can have other gods as long as your primary allegiance is to Rome. John calls this idolatry. He sees this as false worship, literally as worshiping the beast. He's saying, you're looking to Rome to give you what only God can give. Looking to Rome, looking to a political reality to give what God alone can give. Security, stability, safety, provision, identity, freedom. That's idolatry. That's worship of the beast. John is saying, you are placing your trust in political power rather than the true God. You're worshiping the beast. You see, it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus. That's not how idolatry works. The threat of idolatry wasn't an abstract intellectual question, do you believe in the true God or not? The threat of idolatry is, where is your trust? Where is your real allegiance? Who do you really worship? Now back to that question, is this only about them, those Christians living under Roman rule in the first century, or is this about us? As John pulls back the curtain, doesn't this help us to see what's going on in our country today on the left and on the right? I mean, is it possible that we have elevated government, we have elevated political leaders, we have exalted our own political solutions and our group identities over God? I think it is possible. You see, aren't we also complicit, all of us, regardless of our political preferences, in walking in the way of the beast? Doesn't this help to explain the blatant double standards and hypocrisies that we've seen on both sides of the political aisle? We're willing to overlook almost anything, all kinds of corruption and immorality, as long as our side can maintain power or regain power. Christians tie themselves in knots, trying to justify support for this candidate or that candidate, this policy or that policy, this ideology or that one. Family, the church is complicit. In a culture that is drunk on power, we also worship power. And what makes it especially troubling is that we do it with the name of Jesus Christ on our lips. John is pleading with us, wake up, see what's really going on. You have to make a choice. What will it be, the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb? To whom will you give your allegiance, to the lamb or to the beast? Will we choose the way of worldly power that promises control and safety or the way of suffering witness 
and suffering love. Bruce Metzger puts it like this. He writes, The profound religious insight that lies behind these kaleidoscopic pictures in chapter 13 is that men and women are so constituted as to worship some absolute power, and if they do not worship the true and real power behind the universe, they will contract a god for themselves and give allegiance to that. In the last analysis, it is always a choice between the power that operates through domination and inflicting suffering, that is the power of the beast, and the power that operates through redeeming and restoring, even at the cost of accepting suffering, that is the power of the lamb. Close quote. See, the American church is having a severe identity crisis. We may say Jesus, but much of the way we are acting reflects the way of the dragon. We are awash in counterfeit gods that steal our heart's trust. The main problem facing the American church today is not an economic problem or a free speech problem or a persecution problem. It is a worship problem. We've given our allegiance to the beast. And so the question is, how can we resist? I've heard that when federal agents train to recognize counterfeit bills, they don't study the fake ones. They study the real ones. You know, there are too many iterations of the counterfeits out there to, to master them all. And so they study the real bill so well and become so familiar with it that they can immediately recognize the fakes. How do we resist the lure of the beast? How do we resist worship of the counterfeit gods? By worshiping the real God. By focusing our eyes on the Lamb. Well, that's what we see happening in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. In contrast to all those who have been deceived by the beasts, uh, there is the Lamb with all his people from all nations with the Father's name on their foreheads. In verse 4, there's a reference to virginity, which is, again, this is a symbol. You know, the Bible is incredibly positive about sex and marriage. This is a symbol of allegiance, of loyalty. Adultery is used throughout scripture as a symbol of false worship, of giving ourselves to the wrong God. Virginity is also a symbol of being ready for battle. In the Old Testament, soldiers were to abstain from sexual activity leading up to a battle. And, and so remember, our calling as followers of the Lamb isn't to withdraw, but always to be ready for the fight. But also remember, we fight so differently. We fight not by taking up the sword, but by enduring the sword. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 13. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. See, John is saying the way we fight is by patiently enduring the attacks of the enemy. We fight ultimately by following the Lamb. Chapter 4, verse 4, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I love that phrase. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And where does he go? He goes to the cross. He goes to the low and the least and the last and the lost. How do we resist the beasts? 
by knowing the lamb, by worshiping the lamb, and by following the lamb wherever he goes. You know, this is one of the big reasons we gather, family. Every week when we gather around Jesus for worship, we're not just coming to church. We are practicing resistance. All week long, we have been tempted and tried. We have been lured by the beasts. We have been tempted to put our trust in money, in power, in our country, in our political leaders, in particular parties. Every week, the beast has spoken to us through Fox News and CNN, inviting us to embrace a way that takes us off the path of the Lamb. Every week, we worship together as an act of resistance. We confess our idolatry, we confess our failures, and we are renewed again in our allegiance to the Lamb as we worship Christ alone. We're also called to follow the Lamb in our scattered lives throughout the week. John is inviting us to worship Jesus and walk with Jesus and know him so well that we can immediately know the difference between the way of the dragon and the way of the lamb. Every day, the choice is before us. Which will it be, the way of the dragon or the way of the lamb? I invite you to take some time today to really consider your allegiance. Is it to Jesus? and his international, multicultural, multi-ethnic kingdom? Or is it to a particular worldview, or a particular ideology, a particular nation, a particular political party, or policy, or candidate, or movement? I invite you to really examine your allegiance. And I also invite you to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The beast is a counterfeit lamb, but you can see the difference clearly in this. The beast doesn't love you. The beast won't lay down his life for you. The beast deals with idolaters by devouring them. Jesus Christ deals with idolaters by dying for them. He deals with idolaters by forgiving them. That means that his grace is sufficient for you and me, even when we've failed to follow him faithfully, even when we've worshiped the dragon. Here is the one God, the true God, who loves you. Here's the one God who you can trust to lead you home. Behold the Lamb of God and believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.